Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey everyone, what's up? My name is Andre and this is the Tennis and Bagels podcast. And last time I was here, I was talking about the history of Wimbledon from the beginnings, from the origins of essentially tennis, where Wimbledon really uh, played a huge part in, until the World War II. So right at the, the year, the final tournament that they played before the World War. And now I'm here after the Second World War, I'm going to be talking about what happened between this period, right after 1945 until 1965. So this 20 year period, which was actually very important for the history of tennis itself and for Wimbledon, obviously. So without further ado, let's start with how the club was affected by the war, how it was damaged and the consequences that it had in the following years after the Second World War. So at Wimbledon, there was no play, as we can already suppose. Britain was very involved in the war, and being in Europe, it was, again, too close to combat to be able to hold any sports. Several men had served in the war, including players and staff of the club. A total of 16 bombs fell on the property, including one on center court, which destroyed one of the corners, and 1,200 seats, and that damage would only be fully repaired many years later in 1949. The parking lots were being used to grow vegetables and house farm animals such as pigs, chicken and geese. And in 1940, the club thought about actually holding a two-day tournament, but obviously the complications, uh, which were a consequence of the war, were just too many. So it was probably going to be also a little bit dangerous as well. However, far from the epicenter of the war, the US championship were championships sorry, were actually held every year during war times, which, which is actually a very important fact to remember throughout. In 1945, finally, after war was over, the club would still not hold its first post-war tournament, but they held exhibition matches between Britain, Canada, South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand. And the match between the, Empire, the British Empire forces and the United States forces in England was actually attended by the Queen herself, at the time Queen Mary. A few other diplomats from other countries attended the other matches, and in total, 5,000 fans watched the matches. Now, they were hungry for tennis and peaceful times. And not only Britain, but the whole world was going through massive transformation, and Britain was only a shadow of the Grand Empire that it was when Wimbledon first held its first championships at Whirlpool Road. The people elected a Labour Party Prime Minister in Clement Attlee by a landslide, but the biggest since 1906. He defeated Winston Churchill, none other. 
I only mentioned this year, actually, just to contrast a little bit in the transformation in Britain and in tennis, because as I mentioned, Fred Perry was from a lower class and the club did not follow its, its tradition with him in the, as his, at his first win. And I mentioned that actually in the other podcast, by the way. With the changing world, as we will see, many societal transformations can be seen inside of the club and the championships as well. The tournament was almost not held in 1946, as many post-war problems still remain, obviously. And I will quote a little bit from the book because um, they just had a little bit of information. If, if I were to try to like, I cannot really just paraphrase it. It's just better to quote it. So this is John Barrett from page 175 from Wimbledon, the official history edition from 2013. The decision whether to hold a tournament at all in 1946 was a difficult one. First of all, it would be impossible to repair the damaged section of center court in time, which meant a loss, a loss of some 1,200 seats, as I mentioned. Also, the shortages of food, clothing, and petrol with rationing still in force would put a tremendous strain on the committee of management. Then there would be the problem of finding tennis equipment and personnel. But Duncan, aided by his assistant, the indispensable Mary Bompas, by Dan Maskell, reinstalled as the club's president, prof resident professional, sorry, by the newly appointed referee, Cap Captain A.K. Trower, or Trower, I'm sorry, sometimes those English names are tough for me to figure out how to pronounce, and by the Royal Navy, who provided the stewards in the at the first meeting, somehow put together all the stands of organization to produce a championship that, with 23 nations represented, reestablished Wimbledon as the world's premier tennis tournament. I find it rather surprising that they actually had 23 nations competing at that Wimbledon. And thus commences the era in between the war, the Second World War, and the Open Era, and a lot of changes occurred in those times beginning with the domination from the Americans. As mentioned, the US championships was still going on during the war. And this essentially gave the Americans a big advantage over European players as they had to adjust to the post-war period. The new standard was set by Americans as they went on to dominate the tournament for the next decade until the Australians started showing up and some of the biggest names of the sport appeared, which I'm going to be mentioning later on. The Americans essentially split the titles until 1955, with winners being in order from 1947 onwards. Jack Kramer, Bob Falkenberg, Ted Schroeder, who was also the first player to receive his trophy on court. Budge Patty, Dick Savitt, Vic Satius, and that's how he pronounced it because I actually googled him, and he is born in Brazil, and his father is Brazilian. And um, I'm Brazilian, by the way, in case people wouldn't be listening to this podcast want to know. And the last one being Tony Trabert. They essentially, um, yeah, they, they, they all won one title only. And during those years, only two known Americans won, being the Australian Frank Sedgman in 1952 and Yaroslav Drobny in 1954. Drobny was actually a former Czechoslovak who fled the communist revolution, and he won Wimbledon while holding an Egyptian citizenship the only person to win as an African, aside from Roger Federer, but he plays for Switzerland, even though he has a double citizenship um, in South, South, Af South Africa. But later in 1959, Drobny became a citizen in Great, Brit Great Britain, where he, had, he was already living, actually, when he won the championships, which is interesting, because um, before Murray, there was no official British player who won 
um, at Wimbledon. But Jobney was was essentially a British player, was just not playing representing Britain at the time, but that's what really counts. Sedgman was, in fact, the prelude of a wave of Australian domination in tennis coming in the next few years. But first, before the Americans, there was, there was a Frenchman, which I think is interesting to mention. Ivan Petra, a tall and powerful player with a massive, massive serve. He fought through three five-set matches to finish the tournament, beating the top seed player in the quarterfinals. Two important facts about him that I think it's uh, really cool to mention is that one, one of his serves actually broke a net, which is a representation of how big he actually served. And he was the last champion to compete, and he was the last champion, sorry, to compete in long pants, from the first guy Bunny Austin in the 1930s. Only almost in 1950, such simple fashion caught on. Um, it's it's funny because people wouldn't play in shorts for nearly 20 years. Just let that sink in for a little bit, right? And it was not only the American men who dominated, the women from the US also had a big impact in tennis at the time. And in fact, they were even more dominant. I think I mentioned that at least in the men's side in the beginning, but sorry, I forgot about the fact. Um, while the men dominated, it was a lot of them. But for the women, pretty much only, a, they were incredibly, incredibly talented and they dominated um, the tour, not the tour, but like the, the, the championships for about an entire decade. The women from the US also had a big impact, big impact in tennis at the time, and in fact they were even more dominant as only five players won all titles from 1946 to 1955, as I said, almost 10 years. In order of first title, Pauline Betts, Margaret Osborne Dupont, Louise Bro, Doris Hart, and Maureen Connolly. The biggest winners from this, from this select group were Louis Bro with five titles and Maureen Connolly with three. Maureen only lost four matches in her career and not one at a big event. So all of the Grand Slams that they were playing at the time, she never lost a single match. She won every single one that she played. She was the first woman to win the Grand Slam, which is winning all the Grand Slams um, in a single year. And uh, sadly, at the end of her career, she, surf she suffered a horse riding accident that broke her leg, and that was the end of Maureen Connolly, but had that not happened, she would have been probably just as dominant as, as uh, maybe Martina Ratilova. One fun fact is that one of the players who conquered Maureen, Beverly Flakes, not in a Grand Slam match, not in a big event, but she was one of the ones that gave him Maureen, Maureen Connolly one of her four, uh, four losses. So Beverly Flakes was fully ambidextrous, ambidextrous and played with two forehands from the left and right hands which obviously you cannot play forehand with your foot but anyways she lost the in the only Grand Slam final she ever contested against Louise Bro in 1955 and actually you can still find some short clips of that match online which I did watch by the way which is even for the type of tennis that, that was being played at the time a little bit slower um they are hitting the balls uh not as hard as they do today, but it's still really impressive to see a player doing a double forehand. Oh, also in contrast um, with uh, Rafael Nadal, who just revealed in his uh, Instagram live conversation with Roger Federer 
that while he is fully ambidextrous in a way like he he said i have most of my feel on my right hand he can write he plays basketball and stuff but he says he was always a left a lefty when playing tennis so there were a few rumors about saying that he could have chosen playing lefty or right-handed and he chose to play left-handed or whatever because of conversations with uh, uncle tony or whatever but in the end he just revealed that it was not that that was not the case he just always played lefty to the demise of roger federer of course and finally starting in 1956 after all those years of domination by the americans the australian man and finally starting in 1956 after those 10 years of fully american domination on the men's side though um, the Australian men finally started taking hold of the game, and not just at Wimbledon. They were led by the legendary Harry Hopman, the one whose name was used in the Hopman Cup had held in Perth until last year in 2019. As we know, this year they started the ATP Cup, which is a little bit controversial in the sense that like people don't really know exactly what it is, and I have a full episode, uh, full podcast about it. It was, I believe it was my first episode, by the way. So I'm sorry if the quality isn't as good. Hopman was a great coach who pushed his pupils through rigorous fitness training and encouraged their own styles by giving them confidence in the match playing capacity. It's actually a really great strategy, honestly, and I can say from personal experience that not having the fitness level required to play our best game really does take a toll on your mind. You really cannot put yourself all in out there if your body cannot take it. If you know that you're going to get tired after a five-shot rally and not going to be able to play the next game as well, it really does um, affect your sight, uh, your, your your mind in in playing. And tennis is, a, is, is really a game that requires a lot of focus. So, yeah. So the most important players at this era for from the men's side were Lou Hode, Rod Laver, Roy Emerson, and Ken Roswell. Even though a couple more actually ended up winning the tournament. I believe two more Americans. Alex Omido and um, Chuck McKinley. Luhod was an incredible player who won in 1956 and 7. He was a dominant player in general. And at Wimbledon he completely trashed, he completely thrashed, sorry, Rosewall in the final with the loss of only 5 games. 6-2, 6-1, 6-2. Unfortunately, like many, injuries ended up taking the best of his career a few years after he became a pro in 1957. And sadly as well for Ken Roswell, he was never able to win at Wimbledon, and I believe he tried four times. Yeah, so Ken Roswell never won at Wimbledon, he lost four times, two as an amateur and two in the open era. Two in the 50s, right before he became a professional, and the other two were in the 70s. He was an exceptional player whose career spanned through three different dec- decades, in winning slams in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, even though Wimbledon, Wimbledon wasn't one of them. His earliest in 1953, aged 18, and the last he was aged 37 in 1972. Just like Cold, he became, he became a pro in 1956. And Ken Roswell actually tried to convince Holt to become a, um, a pro in 1956 as w- in, in 1956 as well, sorry but he ended up just choosing that path a year after. Now, the two most important players of this era, and for actually a very long time, they're considered 
the best in men's tennis of all time were Roy Emerson and Rod Laver. Those are names that uh, most tennis fans are really, really familiar with, including Rod Laver. And I believe Rod Laver is a name that even if you don't follow tennis, you must have heard it um, at some point in your life, including there's a Laver Cup, which is obviously based on, is named after him. These two Australians have great records in the Grand Slams, Ray Emerson being a great serve and volleyer who went on to win 12 majors all in the 60s, only broken by Pete Sampras in 2000 and broken again by Roger Federer in 2009. The number of uh, majors, so he was the holder of the most majors um, ever until Pete Sampras broke him by winning Wimbledon in 2000 and then Roger Federer broke the record from Pete Sampras in 2009 by winning Roland Garros. A big surprise for me, by the way. All of uh, Emerson's Grand Slam titles came in the amateur, amateur era, as he did not have as much success when the tennis went open. I actually saw his match record after that, and um, he wasn't very very great. As soon as tennis went open, he couldn't... I don't, I don't think he even reached the quarterfinals of a tournament. And I don't know if he reached the fourth round, even. So that's really sad, and he didn't go pro before. So when tennis went pro, he was already not at all his best. However, Rod Laver's record still stands to this day in the men's side. By winning all four Grand Slams in the same year, 1962, he became only the second man to win the Grand Slam after Don Budge, the almost invisible American who won in 1938, as I mentioned in the previous podcast episode. But Rod Laver did it again in 1968, the first year of open tennis, now being the only person to win the Grand Slam as an amateur and a professional. And while this record can never be equaled for obvious reasons, he still remains the only man to win the Grand Slam in the open era. Liver became a pro also in 1963. So Djokovic does have um, a Djokovic slam, as uh, we like to call it, when I believe in two, from 2015 to 2016 or 2014 to 2015 something like that he held all of the grand slams at the same time but not in the same year so the grand slam he's achieved only if you win all of the slams in the same year serena also did a similar thing twice he held all of the grand slams but not she didn't win them all in the same season so now moving on to what i think is the most interesting part of this whole period, because as I said, um, during this, this period, essentially, um, all of the big records in tennis were, were set and some of them are still to be broken today. And at this time, one of the greatest uh, tennis players that who ever lived came and played and went on to set so many of the records that are probably never going to be broken. So among the women, a couple of players really, really do stand out, as I said, but all of their, them were actually great champions who won multiple titles and set up many records. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to look at three of them. The first one who I want to mention is uh, Athea Gibson. She was another powerful, tall American whose dominance would probably be comparable to Helen Moody if she didn't turn pro in 1958. After winning her second straight title at Wimbledon and another at the US Open which at the time was in Forest Hills, not in Flushing Meadows. She was fighting two battles, though, well, around three battles at the same time, actually. One was actually playing um, the mental battle and physical battle against other players, but the other one was the 
lack of recognition in women's tennis and one third battle that she had to fight and there are actually plenty of uh of resources online from from her and which was the battle of racism as she was the first african-american to win at church road men or women actually not at church road but um at wimbledon she was the first african-american to lift the the championships title regardless um of sex a fun fact about her is that after she quit the pro tour as professional women players did not get a same, the same opportunity as as men let alone a person of color she pursued singing and also professional golf being also the first african-american to join the lpga although racism still plagued her career there she wasn't free from that um terrible social issue anywhere she went pretty much and honestly now after looking into into her career and into her life i went beyond this book to search a little bit more about athia gibson i am actually really really interested in learning more about and reading some of her some of her books because that is going to probably bring a lot of insight um in the world of sports and in just how how difficult life was at that time. Sometimes we just take everything that we have for granted. The second player that I wanted to mention was Maria Bueno, a Brazilian who was a natural talent. And as I mentioned, um, I kind of am biased in the sense that I wanted to talk about her because I am Brazilian and she's Brazilian and she did something that is really cool, which is winning Grand Slams. And the only other Brazilian that did that in singles was uh, Gustavo Kirten. He never actually won Wimbledon, but he won three Roland Garros, which is amazing. And But I, I, I do want to talk about her because they mention her in the book. And uh, John Barrett is actually really... Um, he really has a lot of praise for her, for her game. In total, she racked up three Wimbledon titles, two in succession in 1959 and 60. And one of them was a great final against Margaret Smith, now Margaret Court. In 1964, where Bueno won in three sets, 6-4, 7-9, and 6-3. By the way, uh, at that point, there were no tiebreakers, so the match, the, the set would still go on until somebody won with the advantage of uh, two games. And in fact, um, many of the score lines you're going to see, uh, they went up to like 17-15, and the next set is going to be like 6-2, and then, I don't know, the other one will be like 10-8, and stuff like that, so... I'm happy that they uh, that they put in the the tiebreakers now, and now that they have a tiebreaker in the in the fifth set, it's honestly far more humane for the players to play like that. Maria Bueno was very well known for her extreme finesse and elegance. With Barry, the author of the book, I am reading to for his podcast, calling her poetry in action. So I can actually only imagine her playing a game like Roger Federer's, but in the late 50s. And the last player that I wanted to mention, I actually already mentioned her name, um, in the rivalry against Maria Bueno, is Margaret Court. Another great Australian, as we all know by now, is a player from Down Under who rewrote the history books and has records still to be broken, and actually unlikely all of them will be. So, her records are just way, way too too impressive so it's i i do believe that it's unlikely that people are actually going to break them so just to give a bit of a of an idea she's the winner of 24 singles grand slam titles 
more than anyone men or woman amateur era or open era although we actually are counting all of the her titles from the amateur and from the pro tour but it's still that that's a lot because the players ended up being somewhat the same um from in, in that period of time for titles in the open era though only one in the open era serena williams does have the most men or woman um standing at 23 Margaret Court also had 19 doubles titles and 19 more in mixed doubles, bringing her career Grand Slam tally to a total of 62 titles. And since nowadays we kind of don't see many players winning both um, in the doubles and the and the singles, and I believe that's probably because the sport is is too demanding now. Um, this this record is probably gonna remain unbroken forever and ever until unless something major changes in the way that um the score line is is this the score system works in tennis and on, on top of all that she won the grand slam in 1970 remember a grand slam is when you win all of the grand slam titles in the same season and she did this she did so in singles and in mixed doubles in mixed doubles she did it in 1963 during the amateur era all of their winning can be understood essentially in this one statistic. 1,177 wins to 106 losses. Let me repeat that. 1,177 1, wins to 106 losses. That's a staggering 91.74% winning, winning rate. It's really sad today that the controversies involving her are kind of like a stain to all of those records with John McEnroe essentially tweeting once for Serena Williams to please win two more Grand Slams so that we can forget about Margaret Court, which is, um, I understand where he comes from, but I, I do think it's a tennis record that we should never really forget because she she was one of the great ones. She probably is the greatest player of all time and there's no amount of rage and hatred that's going to um, make that disappear. But now, just before I finish, there is a bonus player that I wanted to talk about, since the championships are a very, very British event. Angela Mortimer, who was the first British champion since Dorothy Round in 1937, and not only that, that year in 1961, Britain was guaranteed a champion, as Christine from... Christine Truman, sorry... For also from Britain reached the final as well, the first all-British final since Mrs. Lambert Chambers won in 1914, a weight of 47 years, and all of that weight is in fact just about a little bit over half the weight that um, Britain had to wait until Andy Murray went on to win the title in 2013. That is honestly the, the biggest, biggest gap in Britain tennis ever and I don't know if there's going to be a bigger gap than that and to cap off this episode as you may notice many of those great players that I've mentioned started to move into professional tours earlier and earlier since the second world war we had Rod Laver, Ken Roswell, Lou Hold, who only played um, two championships and Rod Laver as well played about just two championships and Margaret Court, Athia Gibson so that means that there is there was something something out there, right? So it was actually only reasonable since the players were becoming better and better and the sporting was getting 
to a very high level to very high levels of popularity all across the globe. And the amateur status, in fact, meant that players could not get paid at all by by playing tennis. So they would only get the uh, accommodations and, and and food. They wouldn't get any any money from playing and practicing. They were not allowed. If they wanted to get paid, if they demonstrated any interest, they were already ruled out of um, amateur tours, and they couldn't. They weren't allowed to compete anymore in the Grand Slams. So, as I said, this very strict rule, the need to pay the bills, and many other factors were about to trigger the biggest event in the history of tennis that would change the sport forever and lead us to where we are today, and that is the dawn of the open era. But I will have to leave that for another episode because I'm honestly, I spent a lot of time on this book and there's other stuff that I want to talk about. And But the, the open era is definitely a subject and the whole part of uh, the transition and what happened during the 70s and well, the late 60s and the 70s is a very, very interesting period um, where not only open, open tennis be, uh, began, but also the ATP tour was established and the rankings were established and also the WTA tour was established. And this actually ties, very, ties in very well with the current um, discussion that players are having and um, or the associations are having. Since Roger Federer tweeted that, um, that he wanted to see um, the tours combined, I think I will... That, so there is like way too much history and way too, much, too many topics to, to cover. And um, if I were to essentially study all of uh, all of that before bringing in a podcast for y'all. Um, uh, first, firstly, this episode would only come out in June. And the second is that it would probably be six hours long. So um, I will have to finish it off right here. And that was the history of Wimbledon from the origins of tennis to the dawn of the open era that's a lot of content and a lot of players a lot of people that i haven't mentioned a lot of um history that i have to leave out but um i think i covered most of the most important points that related to wimbledon and to the biggest champions that ever were in there and that ever actually went on to step on the sacred grass of wimbledon and here i am again making uh air quotes when uh, <laughs> nobody can see me since it's a voice-only medium. But in, in any case, um, I'll leave all that to another episode, another day. I'll announce when I uh, intend to do an open-era history podcast. And um, yeah, I'll see you next week. And I did break my promise again. I did not meet you guys on Wednesday, but I'm meeting you guys on a Friday very late night, um, so I apologize for that, but I am going to try my best to do a podcast um, maybe on Wednesday or Thursday because uh, there is some interesting events happening this week as well, which I want to I wanna follow. So, yeah, I'll see you all next week, and, uh, yeah, have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 